So the message I'm going to share with you the next two Sundays is extremely important, and I want to begin with the example of Jesus Christ in John 13. John 13, verse number 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We, um, we don't quite get what happened in that setting. But I can tell you, the men that were in the room with Jesus that night, they got it. The glorious, peerless, the one without a rival, the Son of God, clothed himself as the lowest servant in a household. If I'm going to be completely honest, he took the position of a slave, a first century slave. He took off his clothes except for a, a, a loincloth. He took a pitcher that had water, poured it into a bowl, and took 12 pairs of dirty feet into omnipotent hands, and he washed them. He did the job of the most menial servant, and he, without rival, was the highest-ranking person in the room. Son of God, of course, but even as the Son of Man and as the leader and the Messiah, he took upon this form of a servant and did the most menial task, and then he used it to teach them. He said, I'm your master and I'm your Lord. You know that. And what I've done here tonight is an example of how I want you all to interact with each other. You're my servants, and you're not greater than me. What is he saying there? He's saying, if I, the greatest, can do that which is the lowest, then I want you to learn from it, and I want you to live that way with each other. John 13 is a highly relational scene. It is Jesus Christ establishing in the very vision of his followers, 
and it's recorded here for our example too, that when we relate to each other, we don't approach one another with a strut. We don't approach one another in our swagger. We don't come to each other with a list of how you might be blessed by serving me. We approach each other with a pitcher of water and a towel and a bowl, and we say, I'm going to serve him by serving you. It's very interesting that Jesus said, you know what I've done to you, and as I've done it to you, you would think he'd say, I want you to do it to me, but he didn't. He said, as I've done it to you, I want you to do it to each other. This is key for all of your relationships. It is key if you're married in your marriage. It is key if you have children with your children, if you have parents that you're still engaged with. It's key in that relationship. It's actually key in those settings that we don't even think of as spiritual. A lot of people leave their Christianity at home when they clock in at work, and yet if we would approach even our, our vocation with the idea that I am a servant of God, and though he needs no service, I serve him by serving others. I'm going to tell you, it may not always be rewarded down at the 9 to 5 place, but I'm going to tell you, the treasures and the riches that you store up when you live out your relationships, not as the one demanding to receive, not as the one that everybody else must orbit around, but as the laid-down lover that says, I'm here for you. That is when you invite anointing on your life and your relationships. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to preach John 13. That's all you get from me out of John 13. I'm going to take you through the next two messages, through some of the almost 60 times in the New Testament where we are commanded to relate to one another. More than six, or almost 60 times in the New Testament, the Bible says, do this one to another. Do this one to another. Live with each other as this. And it is specifying how I am to treat you, you are to treat me, and as believers, we are to treat others in our relationship. 60 times in the New Testament, we are given these commandments. Most of us would be hard-pressed, including me, before I studied this for the last month, be hard-pressed to give maybe 10 or 15 of them. There's 60, and most of them are given by way of an imperative, a command, something God says, do this with each other. It's not up for vote. He doesn't ask for a move and a second and a majority approval. As Lord, he says, this is what I command you to do with each other. So are you ready to grow this morning? Okay, let's grow together. About a third of these that we call the one another statements in the Bible deal with unity in the church, about a third of them. About 15% of them stress an attitude of humility and deference in our relationships. And about another third instruct Christians to be constantly motivated by selfless love toward each other. Whew. You can't do this in your flesh. You can't do it by trying harder. You can't study your way into accomplishing these things. This comes from a moment of full submission to the Lord and an acknowledgement that in my weakness, your strength will be perfected. And so in order to live these out, 
It's yet another reason why we must be filled with the Spirit. People automatically, yeah, man, that dude got Spirit-filled, and they equate it to some manifestation, usually tongues or something like that. I'm going to make some bold statements. I can already feel it bubbling up within me. Here we go. I don't care how much you speak in tongues, how much you prophesy, how much you might be used in healing. If you can't love and honor people, all of that stuff is worthless. So let's talk about it and let's keep it in context of this merger that we're entering into with another local group of Christians. Let's start where I'm going to call it just simply initiation, getting started together. What does it look like to get started together as two communities merge? What do your leaders call on you to do as a participant in this merger? Well, let's just start with Romans chapter 15 and verse 7, where we're told to accept one another. Let's just start in the most basic thing. We're told, therefore, Paul says to the church at Rome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, it doesn't get more basic than this. Paul is saying to Christians, y'all receive each other. Y'all welcome each other. Y'all live with a, an attitude of embrace. You're an open door, not a closed door, not a bolted door, not a locked door, not a cracked door where you can close it in a moment if you don't like what you see on the other side. But you're an open door of welcome to all other people. I want you to think about this. In two weeks... This room will probably be standing room only. You will see some reconfiguration of this room, by the way. We're going to have to reconfigure these rows. We're going to reconfigure the stage. There's going to be some changes. But ultimately, the biggest change is all of a sudden, there's going to be some people that love Jesus, and Jesus loves them. You don't know their names. Some of them are going to sit in the seat you've been sitting in for six months, six years, however long it's been. It's, it's going to be a glorious mess. And immediately on day one, you're going to have a decision. Do I resist them or do I welcome them? Do they see on my face a smile that says, so blessed to be able to do this with you? Or do they see in my body language this? Hey, what you doing in my chair? <laughs> you know, those are minimal things. I know this is going to be so, like, basic that some of you are going to be like, man, I came here for the glories of heaven, and you're giving us the carpet in the church room. Come on. Listen, what I'm trying to say here is that our initial welcome and continuing to live with an attitude of welcome is a non-negotiable. Why? Because it's not your church. It's not my church. It's not their church. You see, the Lord is not the guest here. He's the host. This is his place. And so all of his kids are welcome. And so we're going to do what is commanded in Romans 15, 7. We're going to welcome them. Notice that it says this, welcome one another in Romans 15, 7 for the glory of God. Isn't that incredible? Yes. That the manifestation of God's glory can be um, elevated or it can be diminished depending on how we receive one another. Well, let's go a little bit further in this initiation and getting started together. We're told in 1 Peter 5, 5, to put on something, to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. It's very simple, 1 Peter 5.5. 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
And then he tells you why it's good to do this, because God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. And so when we think of this metaphor that he's using here, Peter is literally giving us the picture of getting dressed in something. Now, when we put on our clothes, we see that. This is what we project to people. They see what they are first encountering with their eyes, processing with their brain. They see it on the outside. And what Peter is saying here, he's saying, make sure your humble attitude is visible to everybody. I remember hearing for the first time when I was about 25 years old, a, a preacher going after it, and he was saying some people are so proud they can strut while sitting down. It's the exact opposite of what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying, no, when you move, and we're going to hit this again, so I'm not going to belabor it here, but when you move in relationship with each other, it's not enough to say before God, God, you know I've got a humble heart. God says, well, take that humble heart and make sure it is visible to everybody. In other words, we can't just cultivate a private humility with the Lord, and then when we're around people, it not manifest. And by the way, just so you know, you don't need to advertise that you're humble. You heard about the guy that wrote the book, uh, The Three Most Humble Men in the World and How I Led the Other Two to the Lord? That'll catch up with you in a minute there. The point being is you don't advertise your humility. It's one of those things that as soon as you advertise it, you just lost it. And so when we're talking about humility, we're talking about a proper understanding of who we are in Jesus. We don't have, to, we don't have anything to, to lose. We don't have anything to prove. We just recognize that as, as servants, we're here to serve them. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking in as a, for an opportunity to be a blessing to people, Amen. not wondering why they're not blessing us. How does this take place? Well, Philippians 2.3 is the next verse. And it tells us to prefer one another. Now, this is get out of the gate stuff. This is like right off the bat. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's that word again, count others more significant than yourself. But personal testimony here. Um, I don't know why, but the first book of the Bible I read after I got saved was the book of Philippians. I have no idea why it ended up that way, but I remember reading those chapters in Philippians over and over again as a brand new Christian, and I had lived so selfishly, I mean terribly selfish as a lost man up until the age of 24, and when I, re I remember getting to chapter number two, and it, it's the kenosis passage, and it talks about Jesus just emptying himself. And, and taking upon himself the form of a servant and becoming obedient to all things, to death, even death on the cross. And then it adds this phrase. It says, in essence, that is why God highly exalted him. Jesus humbled himself to the lowest possible representative place that a human can go, death and judgment and condemnation. Jesus did that so our sins would be atoned for. And God looked upon that and he said, because you've done that, I will exalt you to the highest place. You see, sitting on a throne in heaven is the son of God right now. And there is nobody higher than him. There is nothing higher than him. He went to the lowest, made himself the lowest, and God the Father says, I approve that sacrifice, and now I exalt you to the highest. And we are called to do the same thing. Did you get that part that says, don't do anything out of conceit or selfish ambition? That is so counterculture. Do you know what your culture tells you? By the time you're in kindergarten, they're starting to layer your mind with look out for number one. Climb to the top. It doesn't matter who you step on. Win at all costs. If you have to cheat, you have to cheat. If you have to, if you have to backstab, you got to backstab. Whatever you got to do, you just make sure you look out for numero uno. That's, that's, the, that's the frame up of the world. And the gospel comes in, and the one who was meek and lowly, instead of riding upon the donkey, he is now riding upon your heart or sitting upon your heart. 
And he says, I want you to be like me. Don't do anything out of empty ambition. Doesn't mean it's wrong to want to succeed in life, but it deals entirely with our motivation. And that we're not to operate in a conceit. Conceit is smelly, isn't it? You kind of smell it on somebody. They show up. You're not sure what their name is. You don't know what they're all about. Something stinks up in this place. (laughs) What are you smelling? Conceit. It just kind of rolls off of people. So when the Holy Spirit comes in, you you accept Christ. He kind of fumigates you. He just takes that nasty stench off of you and he starts putting on the fragrance of life and the fragrance of servanthood and the fragrance of the fruit of the Spirit coming off your life. But if we're not careful, we can act in ways that welcome that old fragrance back back on us. Friends, one of the greatest moments in our lives is where, and I'm going to say it again, where we actually come to believe that we can live with nothing to lose and nothing to prove. When you get disengaged from having to prove yourself all the time or living in a fear that you got to get, 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 lest you lose, 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 and you you get delivered from the mindset of this selfish ambition and this empty conceit, you're as free as a person can be on planet Earth. The world doesn't teach us that, though. The world teaches us the exact opposite, and that's why Jesus taught us that the world would hate us because the world hated him. And John said, if you want to be a friend with the world, you're going to end up being an enemy of the Lord. So we're being called to a counterculture approach to our relationships. Well, Mark 9.50, the words of the Son of God himself, the words of Jesus in Mark 9.50 tell us, kind of this brings us into the next point, that we're to prioritize oneness with one another. Jesus said this, be at peace with one another. You'd have to hire a whole firm of attorneys to confuse you on that. It is so crystal clear. Be at peace with one another. Pursue peace with people. Be a person of peace. When you establish peace with somebody, live to keep the peace. As a matter of fact, Paul would say it, a slightly unpacked version of what Jesus said. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible... In so much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all others. Now, we understand sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes a person is literally hell-bent on bringing a, a culture and a climate of war into a relationship with you, and you can lay down your sword, but they're still swinging theirs, and those are times where you can't foster peace. But the Bible does get very clear. It says, as much as it depends on you, As much as it depends on you, when it's possible, live peaceably with all. So live free from this unnecessary spirit of dispute and debate and division and friction. Friends, I know the metaphor is old and worn out, but it is a good metaphor. It is incorporated in the name of this assembly you're sitting in. We have to live as bridges We have to connect two places that would not otherwise connect. We have to be those that lay down themselves so that people can get from where they are to where they need to be. We're the bridge. We're the people. We live in a culture, and unfortunately, it's even arisen in in churchdom and Christendom where it seems like people have bought into the lie that the more spiritual you are, the more walls you have between you and the riffraff. 
you and the others, you and those that don't plant the same flag that you plant. I think, I think when we get to glory, I, I'm going to strengthen that. I don't think it. I know it. There's going to be an, a moment of utter embarrassment when we see Jesus and we see the blood-bought throng, the entire mass of redeemed humans, and we look back on our life and we say to ourselves, why did I live taking the biblical doctrine of separation and morphing it into a human doctrine of isolation? See, the Bible does say, come out from among them and be ye separate. But some fundamentalist got a hold of that a couple of hundred years ago and said, run from all people that are different than you. And it ends up being isolation, which is the exact opposite of what the kingdom of God is. You see, brothers and sisters, if we're going to live this out, we're not going to be walls. We're not going to, you ask me to hand you a brick so you can build a wall to keep somebody out. I'm going to say, just hold on a minute. I'm going to bring my sledgehammer. I'm going to tear down what you've already built. Because we are not about building walls to keep people that are different, especially our brothers and sisters. Jesus said, be at peace with one another. I, I've just gotten to a place in my life where I don't assume that's always going on with me. So what does that mean? It means I intentionally diagnose myself. I run diagnostics on my relationships. Am I intentionally being the person offering peace to this relationship, to this relationship, to this relationship? And by the way, if you're always and only around people that look like you, think like you, act like you, vote like you, and all that, then, then you may have a false sense of peace. The problem is you're just avoiding conflict, which means you've got shallow relationships. We, we, we are deepened in the gospel when we start doing life with people that are very different than we are. That's where Jesus really becomes central because we learn what is peripheral in our relationships versus what is core. And that core, of course is that, for a Christian, is that my father is their father. My king is their king. My Lord is their Lord. And I'm actually not called to be the sheriff patrolling the streets of their lives, trying to make sure they walk like I walk, talk like I talk, and do what I do. None of us have that assignment. And if we'll really embrace that, we'll come to a place where we can prioritize oneness with each other. That's that's all in the initiation phase. That all starts in two weeks. By the way, you never grow out of that because you're constantly making new relationships. In a, in, a, in a church setting, by the way, there's constantly an influx of new people that are coming in, people that God sends here, people that come here looking for something of God, either something they can offer unto the Lord in a collective group of believers via worship or service, or maybe they're broken and shattered. Maybe they got burned by the last five churches they were at. Maybe they've just been abandoned by a spouse or buried a loved one. Maybe they're dealing with addiction. Maybe they feel unloved and they look unlovely. And they expect yet another rejection to, to fill up the next spot on the long list of people that have rejected them. What if instead of rejecting them, we just welcomed them like Jesus and said, How can we wash your feet? How can we take on the form of a servant to be a blessing to you? When those relationships are established and we have learned to welcome each other, we move into what I call edification. This is building up one another. This is where we are actually bettering others with our lives. We use our lives for the good of the other guy. We use our resources for the benefit of the other person. 
We don't look at ourselves as a bowl to receive and hold, but as a pipe to receive in one end and pour out on the other end. So what does it look like when we are moving as an assembly? What's it going to look like when these two families merge together in a couple of weeks? What what is that going to look like? What can we do, Pastor? What can we do to be a blessing? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you about four things. First of all, it's something that all of us are qualified for. You don't need a hyperabundance of gifts to be able to do the first one. And what is that? To encourage and build up one another. First Thessalonians 5.11, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. And then I like this. Paul says, just like I've been watching you do, just as you are doing. Paul's telling them not to lose this beautiful dynamic of their relationship of encouraging one another and building up one another. Now, when we hear hear the word encouragement, our minds often go to a a sympathetic pat on the back, um, a sweet hug, an acknowledgement, taking somebody's sense, somebody that's struggling, somebody that's suffering, and that's part of it. That's definitely incorporated in it. But the actual Greek word here is a little bit stronger. It, It carries with it the idea of exhorting one another. It's not just, pardon me, just the sweet, happy, gentle, oh, I feel for you, bro. I feel for you, man. I'm I'm with you right here, brother. I got you. All that's important. There are times for that, but it actually carries with it a greater degree of, of weight. It's saying that we encourage each other by kind of getting on each other a little bit, that we don't let each other fall away. We don't let each other draw back. We don't allow for for one another to get swallowed up in a moment so deeply that we forget eternity. We come alongside of each other. It requires our awareness. It requires that we do more than sit in the sanctuary on Sundays and Wednesdays. It requires that we, we actually branch out, let our lives intentionally touch another life, that we actually care about people. Now, listen, none of us in here are Jesus. I don't want you developing a Messiah complex or a Savior complex. You can't save and rescue everybody. You, you, some of you live like you think you can, but I promise you, you can't. That's not your call. But it is your call to help a few, to come alongside a few, to, to invest in a few. At times to to sympathetically encourage a few and at other times to to charge and exhort and correct a few. Why? Because we want to build each other up. You know, ultimately, we should, as individual believers, feel responsible for our own Christian lives. I, I do not think anybody is going to be held more accountable for my walk with Jesus than I. I will give a full account for my walk before the Lord. Um, So I don't expect you to salvage me, save you, save me, rescue me. But I'm going to tell you something. Even as I take accountability for my own life, I misstep. I get my eyes off the Lord. I I, I can get off course. I'm not even talking about morally. I'm talking about just more vision and, and emotionally and mentally. We're all susceptible to that. And it's a terrible thing in those moments. If you've got somebody in your life that knows you well enough, sees that you're struggling, and that person just says, well, it's none of my business. Now, friends, that's when we're talking about building up one another, encouraging one another. Paul told, uh, he, he told, I forget what letter it's in, but he said, it's strange, he said, I think it's in the book of Galatians, every man must bear his own burden, and then a little bit later he says, bear you one another's burdens. There's a certain sense where you can't help me. 
I'm fully accountable and solely accountable for my life. But there's another sense that there are burdens that come to our lives that if we're wise and we want to see somebody else get blessed and we, we want to come alongside of them so they can be built up for the glory of Jesus, that means we intervene, we get involved, we give, we sacrifice, we, we do whatever we can in order to take the, the knees that shake and the feet that are turned out of the way and the hands that droop according to Isaiah 35 and we make them straight again. See, friends, that's an awesome ministry. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have 15 different gifts of the Spirit at optimum capacity. All you've got to do is have an awareness and a willingness. And God uses you in places like that. Listen, I'm praying. We prayed it in the prayer room today. If, by the way, if you, if you miss 9 a.m. Um, elevate hour, w- w- there's a bunch of us that meet at 9 a.m. every Sunday. And we got in there today, and the Holy Spirit was just, he was the dove flying around in there today. It was beautiful. But one of the things that we're realizing is that we're praying for an outward direction. In other words, we can't get inbred here at this church. That there are people all in our community that are literally perishing without the Savior, but there are some that are saved that are languishing apart from the body of Christ. What do they need? They probably don't need my sermons. They probably don't need um, this big overstructured thing. They, They probably need one of you to be aware of them and be willing and come alongside them and encourage them and build them up. Second thing, when we're talking about edification, serve one another. I've mentioned it several times already, but in Galatians 5.13, I love this. Paul says, you're called to freedom. Say, I am free. free. You're called to freedom, brethren, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. What is the opposite of using your freedom for your flesh? But by love, serve one another. What is Paul saying here? Well, the whole book of Galatians is about coming out from under legalism, coming out from under Judaizers, the influence of legalistic people. And he's saying, I I want you to know you're free. You don't have to do the song and dance. You don't got to keep all of man's rules. You don't have to give yourself to religious overtures that have nothing to do with the gospel. You are free unto Jesus. And so you can imagine the people that have felt enslaved and have the fear of man and are kind of shackled by other people's opinions, all of a sudden the apostle Paul is saying, you're free, you don't have to put up with that. You can imagine the overcorrection. The overcorrection would be, I don't have to care about anybody. I don't have to listen to anybody. I am my own woman. I am my own man. I'm going to live this life just me and Jesus, and I will never, ever give regard to anything else that anybody says. It's just me and the Lord. And Paul says, no, that's actually using your freedom for your flesh. And then he gives you the converse of that. The converse of not living selfishly, not living in the flesh, is to take the freedom that you have and motivated by love, look for somebody you can serve and bless. That, that literally, you know, how the, you know the verse in the Old Testament says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth seeking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is right with him? Our eyes can go to and fro too. Who can I serve? Who can I bless? Who can I help? I'll challenge you with this on a very practical challenge. Everywhere you go, and especially like when we're gathering as Christians, if you're in a group of five or you're in a group of 500, just you, you've got to flip the switch in your mind. It, it, listen, don't be offended, but I'm just going to say it. It's not about you. If, if we make it about us, if I make it about me and you make it about you, we are actually coming cross-grain against what God wants to do. And so we, we train our minds to say, who can I bless? Who can I help? 
Who can I encourage? And that's not legalism because nobody's making you do it. That's the freedom part. It, it goes from I have to do these things to, man, I get to do this? I get to be used of God to help somebody in their journey with Jesus? And God's going to be pleased? And God's going to be glorified? That's what Paul says. Paul says, in love, serve one another. Commercial time. Commercial time. Pastor Dustin has asked for several weeks, hey, we need help in serving. If you're a part of this faith family and you're not serving, hey, we really need your help. And he and I have been doing this long enough to know that most people say, mm-hmm, 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 and then they duck because <laughs> they want that announcement to hit the person behind them. Listen, this is not rocket science. I need about 20 people that will serve one Sunday a month. One. Serving who? Serving with others our children, serving parking lot, serving safety team, perhaps serving in other ministries. But I can tell you, like right now, we need somebody to look at Galatians 5.13 and say, our children are important to the heart of the Father. In love, I can serve them. And you just do it. So are there any takers? <laughs> Don't amen it if you ain't doing it. My point being is this, Dustin's nicer than me. He is the nice pastor. I've never won that ribbon. But when it moves out of a, man, I got to do this because Jeff twisted our arm or whatever. The funnest stories we have as a family on Sundays come from Alicia, my almost 18-year-old, who serves in children's ministry almost every Sunday, not because she has to, because she loves it. And she comes up and tells us uh, on, she tells us stories about your kids. <laughs> y'all need prayer, some of y'all. We, we know about what's going on with your kids. I don't, I cannot think of a single time in however many years she's been doing it. By the way, a lot of our teenagers are down there. A lot of our teenagers. I think it would be important at times for them to be up here and some of the adults that have had the benefit of years of instruction and learning to replace them down there so that they can enter into, but that's for a different moment. My point being is this, Alicia never complains about serving those kids. She's always talking about it with, with just a spirit of joy. Uh, on a couple of Sunday mornings this year, she, we've needed her up here on the praise team. And, and it's almost like she wants to get through the music so she can rush downstairs and she says, I wanna be with my kids. Now, I'm not trying to build up my daughter as super spiritual. What I'm saying is I learned from her example to have a desire to serve a group of people. And so, friends, there's the commercial. Don't amen it and don't overcomplicate it. If you have a Sunday a month where you could be willing to bless children or serve in another capacity, see the nice pastor on the front row. He will make sure you get to the right place and the right people. Motivate one another. You know these verses from Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Motivate one another. Paul says, oh, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says this, let us consider how to stir up one another. That's what I just did to you. To love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. There's that word again, encourage one another. And then it's amplified by the term that he uses a little bit above it, to stir up one another. I like the King James on that, to provoke one another. To provoke one another unto love and to good works. That's what I just did to you. It's not all about patting each other on the head and saying, oh, we're just, we're celebrating you. No, sometimes you've just got to get in there and kind of prod them a little bit and say, hey, 
You're saved. Man, you've got Jesus. You've got glory awaiting you. And and that glory is going to be there when you get there. But right now, this is the age of grace. This is the age of advancing the kingdom. And we're all needed in order to advance the kingdom right here in our place. So what do we do? We provoke one another. We stir up one another. Specifically in the area of making sure you don't abandon the fellowship of the saints. It's bigger than just going to church. That's part of it. But it's, it's like, man, remember your people. Re- remember we're a family. Remember we're the called out ones. That we're going to be together forever. There's a different dynamic on us. And so we're, we're called to do life together so that we might be able to motivate one another and stir up one another. Let me deputize all of you. Raise your right hand, please. I'm not kidding. Raise your right hand. I hereby authorize you to provoke and stir up one another to love and good works. I seal it with a amen. Amen. Now do it. Don't let the preachers do it. Hired guns, doing all the dirty work. No, love on each other, man. Just say, hey, if you serve in this ministry and you, you find somebody that doesn't serve, Say, hey, why don't you shadow me next week? Why don't you walk with me? I'm going to be down in children's ministry. Why don't you just come with me? You don't have to do anything. Come down there. You're going to see what it's all about. Parking lot ministries. You know, you know if somebody puts out the cones and p- picks up the cones? Uh, worship ministry. You're, you're, you're about to come every Sunday, two services a Sunday, one on Wednesday. You're not going to have any idea who's up on the stage because we're blending about 40 people into five different worship teams. How does that happen? Somebody at one point said, I'm willing to put in the hard work. I'm willing to put in the effort. I'm willing to put in the prayer. And you talk about having to lay your preferences down. Any of you that have served in worship ministry or music ministry, man, that's, a, that's like a, a melting pot of preferences. In order to make this happen, you know what people have to do? People have to say, the first one to serve the other wins. Let me go first. Let me serve you. Let me lay down my preferences. Let, let me be the one that steps up and says, how can I be a blessing? And man, when you multiply that all throughout a church, all throughout ministries, glorious things happen. Last thing in this point, and then I've got one other and we'll be done. How are we going to do all this? How do we stay the course? Because it's easy to get kind of jazzed up here, you know, like, yeah. We're going to do this. Hallelujah. Three weeks later, you're like, man, come on, dude. I know it. I told you I've been doing this a while. I've seen all the cycles. But if we will do this next thing, you'll never slip back off into that kind of attitude. What is it? Cultivate the same big picture with one another. We have to have the same big picture. What is it? Kingdom. Kingdom. Kingdom, big K kingdom, not your little K kingdom, not my little K kingdom. Live in harmony, Paul says, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And then he adds in Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What in the world? The big picture is this. Our whole being, our entire life spectrum is for the glory of another. It, I, I, know, I know we know this, but I'm just going to say, your life is actually about him. He makes it about you for some reason. In other words, he he just loves to bless you. He loves you. 
So he doesn't want you operating in some kind of slovenly, slavish fear of the Almighty. No, he loves you, and he loves to bless you, and he loves to make it about you from his heart to you. But the only proper response to him having made it about you is for you to always make it about him. And listen, once we get that, we don't have to fight for the little stuff or fight over the little stuff. Why? Because what we're asking, our, our scanner is going at all times. Our scanner, our internal scanner is, is this glorifying God? Is this glorifying God? Is this exalting Jesus? Is this making Jesus beautiful or making Jesus questionable? What am, what am I doing in my relationship? And our scanner is just going all the time. I say, Jeff, that sounds like hard work. Yeah, dying to self is hard work. Carrying a cross. Jesus didn't tell you to carry a cross so you can part, be part of the cross caravan. It, it's, it's not some, you know, kind of, you know, extracurricular activity. It's carrying a cross means dying to self. That's easier to preach than it is to do. So he says, live in harmony with one another. Um, my, my wife, her, her part, Amy's part in uh, worship ministry, even after the merge, is to oversee vocals. And Amy and a couple of others in the church have just been gifted by God to really understand the beauty of harmonies. God created harmony. Now, I know good harmonies when I hear it, and I know really bad harmonies when I hear those. But harmony, in essence, is, is bringing in three different sounds to make one beautiful sound. That's three-part harmony. Different sounds coming together, but they're layered on top of each other appropriately, and they make one voice, one beautiful sound. That's what Paul's talking about there. He's saying, do it with your life. Harmonize your life with the person next to you and the person next to them. And so that your lives sound like one voice giving glory and honor and praise to Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we can do that. It's so different than so much of what we've seen in our history in churches. And I don't like dragging our dirty laundry out because I know some of you are not yet believers in Jesus Christ, but maybe you'll appreciate the fact that I'm being honest that we recognize it. Sometimes Christians act horribly Sometimes we act like we've never met Jesus. Sometimes we act like that we don't have an ounce of his blood on our lives. I get that. But that's not to be a reflection on who he is. He's never been like that. But because we've experienced that in churches, I think we've kind of come to accept it. That's yeah, just Christians behaving badly. Um, I reject that. I absolutely reject the idea that we should normalize carnality among Christians and just accept it. My goodness, what an affront to the Holy Spirit for us to say, yeah, that's just the way most of us live. Are you kidding me? How about we not live that way? How about we live in such a way, in such a harmony, that the way we interact with people, they start saying, that lady's actually, she's got to be a follower of Jesus. That, that guy over there, man, he acts like Jesus. And, and that church sitting up on the hill on Calvin Davis Circle, the fragrance coming off of that is Jesus. But friends, again, it doesn't happen accidentally. It's got to happen intentionally. We can't afford any longer in the body of Christ to slay one another on the altar of our preferences or our traditions or our little pet peeves. I would encourage you, add this to your prayer life. I did years ago. I just said, Lord, reveal to me what is essential and what's not essential. I prayed that like for a couple of years because the list, I mean, it would seem like every month 
I'd get all stoked up about something. You know, I'm just cranked up. I'm ready to roll on something in the body of Christ. And the Lord's like, yeah, that's, that's not essential, Jeff. You can, you can th- put that on the non, non-essential list. I'm holding on to him like, but it's essential to me. And he's like, yeah, but it's not about you. And so eventually I realized my whole Christian life, I'd been carrying around all this stuff, uh, portraying it as essential to the gospel. It's no wonder I couldn't get close to people. They couldn't get around all the junk I was carrying. And you walk with Jesus, and he starts saying, just stand still for a minute, fella. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. Matter of fact, Peter, bring me a shovel. And just, shoo, shoo, shoo. And eventually, you find out that, oh, I didn't know your yoke was easy and the, your burden was light. You should have told me. <laughs> I did. You're going to be a much happier follower of Jesus when you start offloading the stuff that's just not essential. By the way, I'm going to go ahead and tell you ahead of time. You're going to feel like you're compromising when he starts removing stuff or you start jettisoning stuff. You're going to feel like you're compromising because it's been so important to you. But friends, listen, that's why a healthy understanding of the Word of God. The Word of God will tell you what's essential and what's not. And if you don't get it from the Word, the Holy Spirit will tell you what's essential and what's not. It's about pressing in and drawing near. And the Lord, as you approach the radiance of the glory of God and the light of his presence, that light shines on things that you didn't see when you were distant from him. But when you press into him, all of a sudden you see the light falling on stuff. You're like, I don't need that. Why is this hurting that relationship? Why did I make that a big deal? I told you this. I'm going to say it again. You can leave if you need to, by the way. We never hold you hostage here, but I'm not going to quit until I'm done. When... When my friend Billy Humphrey went to China and was meeting with underground church leaders, I think Billy was one of only a handful of Westerners that even got invited to this meeting. It was totally clandestine. And they're meeting in a place with underground church leaders who have been imprisoned, have been beaten. Some of their peers have been never seen or heard from again, all for the gospel's sake. And so Billy was working with a translator and he was meeting with, I think it was another church leader there in China. And the church leader asked him through a translator, so tell me again, Mr. Humphrey, in America, Christians fight each other over the way people are baptized? Billy said it cut him to the core. Because we do. We do. These guys are over there dying going to prison, being starved, and losing their property and their homes and getting arrested. And American Christians, I don't want to shame us, but I do want to kind of put the spotlight on it. We're fighting over whether you get sprinkled or dunked. Say, well, Jeff, that's important to me. Well, how important is it to you? How important is it? Is it important enough to build a wall between you and another child of God? That's what I'm talking about. So the last thing, continuation. What do we do when conflict arises? Because this is not a Michael row your boat ashore, strumming on the hillside, eating bird seed, kumbaya moment. Good luck at translating that, Sarah. I don't know how you're going to do that. (laughs) She's such a blessing, Sarah. Translates uh, for all of those that come that are, are deaf. We're so grateful. Kelly, too. Kelly helps out when Sarah's not available. 
But what do we do when conflict arises? And let me just make you a promise. There'll be opportunity for conflict in this merge. I'm not actually anticipating a lot because I think for the most part here at Newbridge and the most part at IHOP Atlanta, we got people who are just hungry for Jesus. We, we're not looking. We've been delivered from that kind of garbage and from those kind of settings in the, in the kingdom. We, we're not going back to that, but there will be opportunity. So what do we do? And this is where you're going pit to your, put your big boy, big girl britches on. I want you to hear me on this, and then the worship team will come up when I call them, and we'll be done. When conflict arises, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gently, patiently tolerate one another. Ephesians 4.2. We're told to operate with each other with all humility, gentleness, patience, and we are to be bearing with one another in love. Let me give you just a little breakdown of that verse. If y'all can leave it up on the screen, it might be helpful. Humility is the inward attitude. Gentleness is the outward action. Humility is the heart. Gentleness is the hands, the action. Patience is the inward attitude. Bearing with one another is the outward action. So what the Lord calls us to do is to bring both our attitudes and our actions into alignment with his nature. That we, and he actually tells us to do it ourselves. You know, we're like, God, please make me humble. Well, Paul wrote and said, humble yourself. James wrote, humble yourself. We asked God to do some things that God told us to do. Humble yourself. It's an attitude. But then it's this bearing with one another in love. This, this phrase translated bearing with one another in the English Standard Version, that's the version I use when I preach. It, it, it's a Greek phrase that, that tells us to endure ongoing difficulty or unpleasantness. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put that over our relationships. This is what I love about the Word of God, that it's so practical that God knows that we're not completely sanctified and glorified yet. So he knows there's going to be a potential for friction. So anticipating the potential for friction, we are instructed that when it comes, we are to bear with one another. We're to literally endure the unpleasantness that comes off of us with one another. I like that. I don't know. Maybe y'all walk on water. I don't. You know? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. Taylor's like, yeah, man, you don't have to tell us again. We know. Um, it's reality. When, when we're walking with Jesus and we're keeping the big picture in play and we're seeking to be the servant and not the master, we just start saying, oh, man, that's a rough spot on him. Ah, that's a stubborn patch on her. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to chastise for the 555th time this month. I'm going to bear with it. I'm going to love them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, my commitment is motivated by my love for you, not your perfection towards me. It's better than their amening. I can tell you that. It is. Remain open with one another, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Here we go again. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. That's putting Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.32 together. They say basically the same thing. It says be kind. I had to study all of this out in the original language. That's why I have great Bible software. I don't want to come off as more studious than I am. But uh, when it talks about being kind, it, you know what it means? It means be easygoing with each other. Chillax, amen? Just come on. 
For you that are above 50, that means relax. <laughs> just, just relax. Every now and then from the pulpit, I'll just say to you, will you unclench? Please just unclench. You're, you're, you're relationally constipated. You just need to you just <laughs> relax. It, it's not all that. I mean, just exhale. Paul says, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Talks about being deeply tender with one one another. Everybody you meet is bruised. Everybody is. Man, if somebody walked up to you with two black eyes, you wouldn't pop them in the side of the head, would you? I'm not even trying to be funny there. I mean, no, you'd be like, oh, uh, you want to be tender with them. Well, let me just tell you, there's a lot of souls that have blackened eyes. They've been hurt. They've been wounded. The reason why people, some people are difficult is not, they didn't start out that way. They, their experiences have framed some of them up, and the only way that they'll ever come out of that is if somebody applies some tenderness to it. You're, you're to be that person. I'm to be that person. It says forgive one another. It says when you have a complaint against somebody, forgive one another. Um, we, we hurt each other, we wound each other, we misstep, it's going to happen. Here, here's my advice. Go ahead and stop forgiving people at the exact same point where you want God to stop forgiving you. Let me say it again. Go ahead and stop forgiving people at the exact same point where you want God to stop forgiving you. And if you'll live with that, you realize, man, I need forgiveness perpetually, so I need to give forgiveness perpetually and it's oil to your relationships the reason why the gears are stuck on so many relationships is because nobody's put the oil of forgiveness in there you you just got to bring your little oil can man just forgive squirt it on there the gears will start moving again you say yeah but they're the ones that did wrong okay well that's why you need to forgive them that's the whole point so what do you do well you either get bitter or you you get low and if you get low you're you're in the posture of jesus I mean, one of the last things Jesus ever uttered uh, before he died on the cross was, Father, forgive these. Forgive these that are mocking me. Forgive these that spat upon me. Forgive these that hammered Roman spikes into my hands. Forgive these religious leaders who are taunting me and mocking me. Lord, forgive the Roman soldiers. They don't know what they're doing. And that's the one that lives in us. He actually lives in us. Don't complain against each other. This is a long list, isn't it? It's long. It's hard. James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Ooh, you're lucky I'm out of time. <laughs> Man. Here's a conversation that never takes place. Man, I got done so dirty. I got the raw deal. Man, I was so mistreated, and, and everything was horrible. But man, it got so much better when I started slandering that person and exposing that person. And my man, I'm telling you, the peace of Jesus found me. Healing came to me when I just started opening my mouth and vomiting out all of my my bitterness. Never works like that. You're going to have opportunity to talk about people that legitimately do you wrong. Don't. So Jeff, is that it? Mm-hmm. 
It just says don't. If slander and gossip and criticism and the sins of speech were removed from the church, revival would probably happen instantly. Healings would be abundant. Signs and wonders that we all want won't be entrusted to a body of believers who have no conscience about using their lips and mouth and teeth and tongue to slay one another. If there's been any singular sin that I've seen do the most damage to the church, it's not fornication, it's not pornography, it's not getting drunk. It is the tolerated sin of divisive speech. Let's not let it be named once among us. Very last thing, worship team, please make your final ascent. Give preference to one another in love, excuse me, in honor. I love this. Paul wrote in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. This is where you get to compete. Remember early I said, hey, man, don't be conceited. Don't, it's not about competition. It's not about, this is actually where you get to compete. We're commanded, outdo each other in this area of honoring one another. That is so powerful that a culture of honor, a community of honor, when it's engaged in for the good of each other and to glorify and please Jesus Christ, there is something about that kind of climate that God makes irresistible to people. That is probably my highest goal in this season as we merge two communities into one. Do I want to see people saved? Yes, evangelism is important. Discipleship is important. That's the, the thrust of the Great Commission. I get it. But none of that can be effective until we establish that Jesus Christ is worthy of us as already saved people honoring one another. That means we actually value one another. It's a Greek word translated honor there. It's a Greek word that means we put a high price on the other guy. You don't throw away that which is valuable. You don't treat it haphazardly. You don't tuck it in a drawer or you know, throw it away. And so we're, we're called out, do one another. Respecting each other, revering one another, honoring one another, elevating one another. And you want to be first in line for that. Here, here's the summary statement. And I really am done. When it comes to the Christian life and Christian relationships, the first one to serve wins every time. If you take on the mindset that you will be the first to serve, the first to love, the first to honor, you're going to get freed up from so much garbage down here and you're going to invite, you're going to magnetize yourself to the favor and anointing of God on your life. It will bring, it will draw down from heaven such resources, both tangible and intangible, because God sees somebody like that and he says, I can entrust her 
with the very best I have to offer. I can let him steward the most precious things in my kingdom because I know that they're not going to squander it. They're not going to selfishly consume it, but they're going to honor each other with it. Can we do that as these two communities become one? Can we do that? Will you do that? Would you stand to your feet?